Shabai, welcome back to the podcast. You can become a patron of H-Hour by going to patreon.com forward slash HK podcasts and support what I do and what the podcast is doing and uh, become a part of a niche little community of uh, podcast supporters. Yeah, become a, become a H-Hour patron. Go to patreon.com forward slash HK podcast. Thank you. Sponsoring the podcast today are the Development Society. Development Society is a community of people who want to be better than they were yesterday. They are more than just a clothing company. They truly are a unique community of like-minded people looking to improve. From merchandise where you don't just buy it, you have to earn it, to weekly Zoom yoga sessions. They're the best kind of people you can find. They are hard workers. The DevSoc community is open to all who want to improve. So if you want to get involved with DevSoc, join their infamous Daily Waves newsletter and their Slack community. You can join their Daily Waves newsletter by going onto their website, thedevelopmentsociety.co.uk, chucking your email address into the box for about, for the uh, Daily Waves newsletter and sign up to that content and you get Daily Waves in your inbox. Daily Waves of uh, good, positive, useful information to help you with your self-improvement, personal improvement, professional improvement. They also do uh, yoga sessions online, which you can get involved with, and they are active on Instagram and Facebook as at the Development Society. So um, if you want to get more of an understanding about their philosophies, what they do, how they do it, and how they can benefit you, then visit their website, thedevelopmentsociety.co.uk. In the meantime, and in their own words, stay wavy. Also sponsoring the podcast today are the Aardvark Group. Aardvark provide advanced systems for the protection and management of territories, borders, assets and people for a global customer base. The Aardvark solution incorporates risk management, satellite and UAV imagery for situational awareness, safe systems for the investigation, identification and destruction of landmines and the remnants of war and standoff explosive detection technologies. Aardvark operate in the humanitarian critical defense, security, and commercial sectors in the Middle East, Africa, Asia, Europe, and the Americas, and they are widely regarded as the most effective landmine clearance system in the world. Their expertise is in the creation and implementation of safe systems for the investigation, decontamination, and handover of land impacted by the remnants of war. Following their recent acquisition of Aardvark in August 2017, the new management has sought to develop and expand the company's offerings with systems and solutions that complement the company's highly regarded status. One such enhancement is the addition of advanced drone technology, UAVs, surveillance technology, providing the company with market-leading situational awareness for mine clearing, counterterrorism, border security and asset protection operations. You can find out more about you can find out more about Aardvark at Aardvark.group. You can also get a discount in their online shop which sells kit and equipment which can be useful for people working in post-conflict zones. The discount code is H H O U R. Yep, H O R H H O U R. Stick that in, you get a discount. Aardvark.group. Thanks, Aardvark, for being a sponsor of the podcast. Lastly, sponsoring the podcast today are Rugby for Heroes, a not-for-profit organisation which has been going since 2009. They were formed in the wake of the death of Private Joe Whitaker, who was sadly killed in operations, served in Afghanistan in 2008 with the Parachute Regiment. And since Rugby for Heroes have formed, they've raised in excess of £114,000 now, I think it is. They recently raised thousands of pounds at an event on 
in, on the 26th of June at Old Lemontonians RFC. It was the Rugby for Heroes Restart Festival, an incredible event, rugby going on. There was three different matches going on, incredible matches. You had the Forces Barbarians playing, you had the Pacific Islands Rugby Club playing, you had the Old Lemontonians RFC playing, you had the Warwick Medics playing. It was an awesome day. There was live music on. There was all sorts of entertainment. There was stalls, food, beer, gin, cheap food and cheap beer and gin behind the bar at OLs as well and there was veteran owned stalls as well as well it was an incredible event for an awesome uh, initiative fundraising for military charities as I said they've got more events coming up this year and it's well worth getting involved with Rugby for Heroes I have been every single one of their events since I discovered Rugby for Heroes when was it three years ago now and I intend to go to every single one of their events in the future if I can they've got supper clubs going on they've got more rugby festivals they've got more beer, beer and gin festivals Find out more about Rugby for Heroes at rugbyforheroes.org. In fact, rugby4heroes.org works as well, I recently discovered. So rugbyforheroes.org, whichever way you want to spell it. And on social media, they are at rugby4heroes. Thank you to Mike and everybody for sponsoring the podcast. On to the podcast, my guest today is Philip Ingram, MBE. Philip Ingram, uh, he's got a background uh, in the British military, an extensive background, 26 years as a commissioned officer. He served with the RIMI. He also served with the Inc Corps. He was actually the commanding officer of one MI battalion in Germany. Um, he left as a full colonel, and he is now the founder of Grey Hair Media, which covers all aspects of defence, security, intelligence, business development, photography, digital marketing, SEO, and much more, either through their content offerings or via their consultancy work. He's a fascinating man with a very good insight uh, into um, conflicts in the Middle East, Iraq, Afghanistan, and also Northern Ireland. This is a HR podcast. My name is Hugh Keir, and my guest today is Philip Ingram, MBE. Enjoy. Phil Ingram, Phil Ingram, MBE, Phil Ingram, MBE. Pleasure having you in the studio, mate. Nice to be here. Glad we could, glad we could make it work after all this time, and very yeah. timely as well at yeah. the moment with um, with Afghanistan in inverted commas coming to a close in terms of our presence there, US yep. presence there, uh, which we're going to talk at length about. I think, obviously, well, yeah, I don't think I know we are. <laughs> so, if you wouldn't mind, please, um, what you do, what did you do, and uh, What's your authority on the subject for the cover, I suppose? Okay, well, I, I describe myself on social media, slightly tongue-in-cheek, as a former spook um, who specialised in taking over countries. Um, it's tongue-in-cheek, true. Um, you know, uh, 26 years um, commission service, um, 12 years REMI, um, uh, 14 years intelligence corps, um, left as a full colonel in 2010. Um, military planning was part of my background, but from an intelligence perspective, and I commanded a, a battalion that had a strategic intelligence role among, amongst others. Um, so you know, I have been in the position where you know, helping people plan different operations. And the two countries that helped, over, uh, helped take over uh, Bosnia, we, uh, you know, I was part of the planning team that um, uh, helped NATO take over from the United Nations and bring in the Dayton Peace Agreement. Um, and Kosovo. Um, you know, I was there crossing the border on, on day one, um, having um, just heard General Sir Mike Jackson the night beforehand uh, turn around uh, to Wes Clark and say, I'm not starting um, World War Three for you, whenever he was ordered to go and take 
um, uh, the Russians or stop the Russians from getting to Pristina first. So I've, I've, I think I've got mug at the top, or I had mug at the top of my file in Glasgow because I tended to be amongst the first in a lot of the different operations around the, around the place. Um, now I run my own media company called uh, Greyhair Media, specialising in commentary and original content around all the experience I've had for years. So I keep, I keep my fingers dabbled in that pot. Very good, very good. Okay, let's get straight into it. Uh, US have just announced, or I've just announced they pulled the last troops out, or are about to pull the last troops out yeah. of Afghan. We've done it. We've done it. Um, it. I, th I think I think our, la our almost last have 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 hit the um, the, the aircraft. Uh, we've left most of our interpreters still there. You know, they're still filling paperwork in and forms and all the rest of it, and hoping that the Taliban. Um, uh, stay away long enough for the forms to be filled in and the civil servants to rubber stamp them and them to be put on the flights and uh, and, and actually get out. And that, that's just the ones that we've promised to take out. Um, yeah, hopefully that happens. Yeah. Uh, so, Afghanistan is kind of leaving a uh, bit of taste in my mouth, kind of like, uh, like Iraq yeah. does. For what reason, I don't know. I don't think I... I know what I think. I think... I think the failures, the pair of them are yeah. failures, I think, although it's something I'd rather not, obviously not be the case. However, I'm also not well-educated enough on the subjects or on the higher, on the, the bigger picture, mm. things, things to, to be able to really form a decent opinion on it, which is what I want to do. Mm. So um, talk to me. What's your opinions on it? And just, just pull that mic in slightly closer before we can go. Yeah, well, uh, you, in simple terms, I agree with you completely. Now, I'll put that into context. Um, at the end of the Vietnam conflict, there was a debate between a Viet Cong full colonel and a US full colonel. And the US full colonel turned around and said, we never lost a goddamn tactical fight against you gooks ever. And the Viet Cong full colonel went, so? That's Afghanistan. That's Iraq. You know, the guys and girls on the ground in Afghanistan and Iraq did fantastic jobs. They were doing huge amounts for the periods of time that were there to try and help the local people, to rebuild the infrastructure, um, to do everything that they could um, within their roles to achieve what the tasks that they were being given at the time. Some of the tactics at the tactical level that we did was wrong. And I think there's a lot more to come out in the press about some of the issues around that, and I'll touch on that in a moment. But by and large, the majority of the effort in the ground was superb, the highest quality, reflecting the quality of the troops that we have you know, within our units that operate at that tactical level. The failures were um, at the operational and the strategic levels, um, because you know, strategically, why were we sent to Helmand when we've had our asses kicked out of Helmand uh, historically and so many... Um, uh, different conflicts going back into the late 1800s. Um, whenever it's a culture that everything is based on history and understanding history and, uh, and maintaining those historical enemies. You know, the Afghans um, knew it was the Brits coming back in again, and the Afghans were hardened against wanting the Brits to, in inverted commas, win in any way, shape or form. Um, the strategic understanding of what the end state was. You know, first, the, the, the first piece was going in to um, stop Afghanistan being this um, safe haven for Al-Qaeda to uh, be able to train and operate in and uh, use as a launch site for terrorist actions around the world. Well, that stopped very quickly. 
And then all of a sudden, because we had lots of troops on the ground, there was a lot of floundering around to find out what a follow-on mission would be. So we heard lots of things like you know, to, to interdict the, um, uh, the poppy harvest and therefore the drug supplies that were coming into Europe that are uh, affecting and all the rest of it. There were just excuses that were coming out to try and stay on the ground. But no one turned around and said, actually, this is the final piece of what we want to achieve. Assess it as to whether it was achievable or not and then put um, a, a coherent plan in place to achieve it. And that was um, primarily a political role. So it's very easy for the military to turn, military commanders to turn around and say, oh, yeah, but yeah, we, we didn't get the political direction. It's a political problem. But actually, this is where y you get into the um, military-political interface. And the Minister of Defence, where there are, are lots of very, very senior officers wandering around being paid huge salaries and getting huge pensions whenever they leave, are sitting in a Department of State. The Ministry of Defence is a Department of State. It's their job to tell it as it is to the politicians and uh, inform the politicians as to what they think is going to happen. Um, how many Chiefs of the Defence Staff or Chiefs of the General Staff or Chiefs of the Air Staff have resigned saying what's going on in Afghanistan and our plan is unachievable? None. Well, you know, they, they, there's this great feeling you can't give any bad news to the, to, uh, uh, the minister. Um, you, you always have to give the minister positive. That's, again, a big part of the problem. But if someone actually had the feelings of their own conviction that this was wrong, you know, if Chief of the Defence Staff had resigned, um, the political fallout from that would have rocked the politicians back and they'd have thought, oh, actually, maybe we aren't getting things right here and need to look at it. Would it have affected Chief of the Defence Staff's um, pension? No. Would it have affected anything? No. It had probably made more as a consultant um, afterwards for you know, having the balls to do that. None of them did it. So all of them were complicit in, uh, and, and compliant in the development of the political or lack of political strategy for the development of operations in Afghanistan uh, and in Iraq. And if you're not getting it right at that political level, um, you know, from a UK perspective, how can we hope to get it right from a UK-US perspective when a lot of it in the US is driven in a much more party political way between the Democrats and uh, the Republicans um, and, and it played out. You know, I, I read Barack Obama's um, autobiography um, a couple of months ago and that is fascinating, showing the real polarisation that there is and the paralysis that there is in US politics from a global perspective against a domestic perspective. Um, and um, I have studied a lot of US politics beforehand, and I didn't quite get it as being as polarised and as fixed as it actually is. Um, and Joe Biden's just playing out a party political line in, in pulling the US out uh, as quickly as he's done. And he's right in many ways, because there's no end state. We haven't set an end state. So you can keep pouring money into it, and you keep keep pouring people into it, and we can keep having casualties coming back. But unless you know, when, when are you going to stop doing that? You have to stop at some stage. Unless you get that end state. Can I just pull you back a minute? So back to the Chiefs of Staff. Mm. If that's the case where they weren't willing to voice the honest opinion, why weren't they? What well, was stopping? Uh, or why aren't they, to rephrase it? I, th I, think, I think this comes into um, a bit of culture that there is in the military approach to things. Um, and that cultural piece is... Um, I'll, 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 I'll bring the cultural piece in with an anecdote. Um, and it's, I'm comparing the Air Force against the Army. RAF Gutterslow being built, um, you know, not long after the Second World War, 
um, and uh, the RAF, and I apologise to any RAF personnel that are, that are or veterans that are listening to this, but it, it, it is a good one. Um, the RAF, the RAF come in and um, they build. Uh, you know, they, they have to produce as quickly as possible this operational airbase so that they can be ready to um, fight the Russians should they be coming across the border and, uh, and others. So they build all the quarters because they need the quarters and, and accommodation and the single service accommodation. They need that for uh, all, all the personnel that are coming in. And then they build the, the, the NAFI and they build the cookhouses and then they go, right, um, oh, we've got some operational stuff to do here. So, so they start to build the engineering hangars and they build the houses and they build everything else and, and they're, they're doing that and the, you know, the budget is you know, coming, coming down and as they do that they go, we'll put the golf course over there. So they lay the conditions for the golf course um, and they put the fence around the outside and they've got everything else on and they they then come go right um oh aircraft we, we've, we've got the hazards of the aircraft we need to control them so they build the control towers and they build all the comms that they need around um and they've you know, they built the running track and they've, they've made sure the cinema's properly built so that you know the families that are coming in and helping set this base up have got everything they need from a welfare perspective they've got the schools sorted out and they've got everything else sorted out um and uh, then they get to um uh, the, the 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 meaty bit the runway and they start to build the runway um, and they get a third of the runway built, and they've run out of money. So they go back to Parliament and say, airport, airport, we've run out of money. Um, we need to finish it, so can we have some more money, please? So what do the politicians say? What does MOD say? Oh, of course you do. Oh, you need to do that. There, there's your more money. Um, and they build everything that they need to be able to sustain operations for a long period of time through the Cold War, and, and it's used beyond and, and everything else, and, and they approach that. The Army approach to the same thing would be you driving into this field, putting up a stack of 12 or 12 somewhere, getting underneath it, phoning back to um, the equivalent of PJHQ and saying, right, we're ready for ops, we're ready to go, that's us, gone. Uh, guys, get the mowers out and, and your runway that length and just make sure it's flat and, and they mow up and they do that. The army approach. And the army then goes, right, um, um, we're, we've done this. Uh, can I some money to build some houses for the families and um, uh, you get, get a proper runway and, and put enough in? And, and the, the politicians are going to turn around and say, no, 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 you've, you've declared yourself operationally ready. Why do we need to fund that? That's the same approach that you get whenever um, decisions are being made um, at the geopolitical level out of Ministry of Defence and at lower levels in operational theatres. You know, the, the default answer is after sucking of teeth, if it's really difficult, that will be difficult, but we'll find a way of doing it. And if you say, right, you've got 50% of the resources to do it, that'll make it very risky, but I'm, I'm sure we can find it. Uh, instead of going, no, that will never happen. And I've, I've come across one commanding officer um, in my time who said no, and it was when um, new health and safety legislation came out. And I was um, you know, a junior REME officer, and we were in a big... Um, Remy um, workshop and health and safety legislation came out and we didn't have all the hazmat kit and high-vis stuff and everything else that was needed for all of the vehicles um, and Active Edge was called uh, which was the big exercise during the Cold War uh, that could get called at any, any time and you had to deploy out to your deployment locations and, and, and take away elsewhere um, and he'd been asking for exemptions for Active Edge and for deployment for this new health and safety legislation uh, if it needed to be called and kept getting back from um, uh, headquarters BAOR as it was at the time. No, 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 you have, to, you have to apply all the rules. You have to apply all of the rules. You have to apply all of the rules. And then they got called out in Active Edge and he said, I don't have the kit, therefore it's illegal for me to deploy out. I'm not deploying my workshop. 
He had the balls to do that. Um, I've never seen a senior general have the balls to turn around and say, we can't do that. They always, or air marshal or admiral, they always default to, the most they'll say is, that could be awkward, that could be difficult, there's some risks with this, but we'll find a way. Do you think it's potentially uh, born out of the issue that they're very short-term appointments that they sit in? I, th I think that's part of it. Uh, I think the other part of it is there's no accountability. Um, so you know they they retire um, and they've got the nice um, pension at the end of it, um, and the decisions that have been made in their watch are proved to be fundamentally flawed. Uh, whether it be operational decisions, whether it be decisions with uh, regarding personnel, whether it be decisions re regarding kit, um, they find it um, fundamentally flawed. And um, so what for them? There's there's no consequences at all. And therefore, when they're in that position, where there's no consequences for the decisions that they make, um, do they provide the level of duty of care that we would expect in the decision making? No. And why is there no uh, are there no consequences? Because defence hasn't got any method of uh, it hasn't got anything that provides it a conscience in any way, shape, or form. It marks its own homework. So you look at it from a um, a, a unit perspective um, and unit admin perspective. You know, as, as a CEO, the worst things that happened with the admin inspections, the worst that came in, um, and you, you sat there and you get the chief clerk together and the adjunct together and the RSM together and the two IC together, um, and you'd, you'd sit down and you get your RAO to come in and audit all your paperwork and make sure it's all done and everything was slotted in place and so that you get the, the green tick. Um, but you did all the mechanisms allow that to happen smoothly the whole of the way through the year? No. Um, you d did it in a rush, sort of every year before you had your inspection. Does that mean that you've got best practice going in? No, because uh, it should just run smoothly the whole way through. Um, and if something was found wrong, if you were in favour, were there any real consequences? No, because it was your mates, your chain of command, um, that were marking your own homework. Um, and in many cases, you marked your own homework if you had to do a self-assessment on it. Um, how, how many OCs, COs, um, brigade commanders, or one-star commanders, two-star commanders uh, report up to the next level to say, uh, actually, my organization's a bag of nails. Um, you know, it's, it's just not fit for purpose. Uh, there's nothing that we can do. You'll always report up, no, 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 it's, just, it's, it's okay. We can do it. We can fix it. And if someone comes in with a problem, you go, yep, got it. Thank you for that. We'll learn the lessons from that. We can fix it. Well, how many times have we heard we can learn the lessons from that? And we've never actually learned the lessons. Classic on that. Um, I left um, headquarters Allied Rapid Reaction Corps as an SO3 um, at the end of Bosnia. I came back three years later as an SO2, having been staff trained. Um, uh, and came back, and we were just going into the annual big exercise, and I went round to the exercise planning branch and said, what are the objectives? And they said, oh, one of the objectives is to prove this new headquarters design for warfighting. And oh, okay, I did lots of that when I was here as an SO3. I'd be intrigued to see what, um, what, what you're going to do. And this guy pulled out this design and said, this is a completely brand new design of uh, a, a, a headquarters arc for warfighting operations and all the rest of it. And I went, that's familiar. That's been tried before. And won't work because of one, two, three, four, five, six. He said, no, 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 I've just come up with this. I've designed this myself. It's, it, it, it's going to be there. It's going to work really well. I said, give me two minutes. Wandered around to my old staff branch, and the chief clerk in it was a German. And the Germans, you know, he was posted in there for, for forever, for life. That was the only job he was ever going to have. 
uh, and, I, and I went around and said, hey, hey, um, sorry, Major, can you get me the old um, uh, exercise file for this exercise uh, where we trialled the, um, uh, the headquarters uh, in that year? And he went, oh, good to see you again, boss. Um, went around, got the file. We had paper files then. Brilliant. I miss paper files. <laughs> um, uh, and we produced the post-exercise report on the design of the new headquarters. And I took it out. Wandered around to the exercise branch and went, there you go. You see that diagram that you say you drew? There it is there. From three and a half years ago. And there's the reason why it's not going to work. And he looked at me and he went bright red and he said, don't tell anyone, please. Oh, my God. Now, that translates across, across the board you know, because nobody's held accountable. Um, people don't learn lessons. Um, you observe lessons and then... Because of the way we have our posting cycles and people are changing over all of the time, you relearn the lessons and relearn the lessons. Well, you're not. You're re-identifying lessons the whole way through. You're not learning them because um, you're not progressing. Um, and why are you not progressing? Because nobody is sitting there pulling them all together and forcing you to progress them. Um, I, I'm, I'm being slightly flippant here. There, there are some really good things that have developed over the years, um, but not as much as should have. Um, and at the higher levels... They haven't developed as much as they, they could do. You know, coming back to um, Afghanistan and Iraq, and I'll bring the Balkans into this as well, from an intelligence perspective, um, we had better intelligence systems and processes in place in the 1980s in Northern Ireland, and those were never deployed to the Balkans, to Iraq, and to Afghanistan until very late in the Afghanistan tour, um, because senior officers in a lot of the equipment procurement areas, um, the capability development areas, all the rest of them, oh, no, Northern Ireland, that's, that's completely different. It's nothing like happening in the Balkans or in Iraq or in Afghanistan. So it doesn't translate across. And I was going as an intelligence sir, it does. It's exactly the same thing. You know, uh, 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 there's different warring factions that have got different religious affiliations that are blended in amongst the people. We need to be able to analyze um, uh, uh, information that's coming up from the lowest level of uh, foot patrols on the ground right through to the highest strategic intelligence that's coming in and fuse them together so people at different levels can pull it out and, and work out what's going on. That's how we got the terrorists in Northern Ireland to the culminating point. We didn't do that in the Balkans. We got away with it there because it was a different operation um, and we overwhelmed um, any of the um, different factions that were there rather than being the enemy because they never decided to fight us. But we didn't get it right in Iraq and we didn't get it right in Afghanistan. You know, a, a story of Iraq, and I'll try and make it as bland as possible so it doesn't identify exactly which Iraq and, and where it was, but um, there was one briefing... Um, where um, the Chief G2 arrived in before the General Officer Commanding and um, uh, put a complete targeting brief together for the area that he was in and produced this targeting brief. And when the GOC came in to take over as GOC Multinational Division South, um, he got this briefing and he went, oh, that's brilliant. So we know that that's a top decision maker. We know that these are his key um, chiefs and uh, we know that this is his next layer of command and we know that these are the foot soldiers and we've got some of the good names and that and, and we know where they're based and where they're working with. So if we target that, that and that, we can disrupt everything that they're doing um, and bring um, peace to the area. Uh, and I went, yes sir. Um, and uh, whenever 
six months, six and a half months later, it came to leaving and preparing a targeting brief for the next GOC coming in. Uh, targeting brief was presented, and the GOC said, oh, that's fantastic, that gives perfect understanding of what we need to hand over um, to the next um, organisation that's, that's coming in. It, it, it shows we've got the level of fidelity and understanding of, of what's going on in here. Um, that will we'll get that fixed, and, and that's, that's a perfect handover brief. Very quietly, the chief G2, um, after it, went round to the GOC's office and said, um, General, I'm really sorry, but I didn't want to say this publicly, but that brief I've just given you is exactly the same brief, word for word, that was given you when you arrived. We've achieved nothing since we've been here. We've done lots of activity at the bottom. We've taken lots of the foot soldiers out, but we haven't done anything to affect the overall control of what's going on. And in fact, they've got a stronger control, if anything, because we have done nothing, because they know that they can run rings around us. Same thing happened in Afghanistan. Why? Um, again, there's no, there's, there's no mechanism to hold anything to account. Everything goes through the chain of command, and um, there's no bad news passed up the chain of command in any, way, in any way, shape, or form. And we've got what I class as self-misinforming groupthink. So, you know, the... Quite common these days now they're part of society. Yeah, actually, it, it is. It, it's common across the board, <laughs> and, and that's where to stop it. It's important that you have a conscience. So look at look at education. Um, Self-misinforming groupthink among schools is stopped because there's an independent body that comes in called Ofsted, and Ofsted pull the school apart and go, "This is your rating," and if you haven't got your rating, oh head teacher, um, uh, you, your post is. Um, uh, under special measures and you're going to be watched very closely indeed and you've got external auditors who are sitting in there watching everything and we'll tell you when you're right again and you can get on with it but it's now come to the point where head teachers can then go to Ofsted and ask them for advice and they can say I'm not too content about this is there best practice and it's turning into something that is making our schools and our education system better um, healthcare you've got a similar thing with the Care Quality Commission now, there's criticism with all of the different organisations that are there. Um, department of the Environment, you've got the Environment Agency. Um, start thinking through every government department, and they've all got this organisation or agency that acts as its conscience, acts as its auditor, doesn't report to the head of that organisation um, and isn't funded by that organisation, is, is an independent body that's sitting there. What is there for defence? It doesn't exist. So we rely on the chain of command. Um, and you know, from, from a chain of command perspective, let's put it, bring it into the, the uh, dealing with people side of things. Um, and there's, a, there's an issue, a live issue I'm dealing with at, at the moment that's come to my attention, where there was um, a young female officer in a very highly prestigious unit who was <coughs> harassed, is the gentle way of describing it into a position and to stop the harassment it was easier for her to get into a relationship with a more senior officer than not get into a relationship with a more senior officer. Um, more senior officer um, then who's married um, uh, as she starts to um, you know, want things to develop a little bit more um, but uh, is being put under more pressure from the unit that they're all part of 
um, saying, hang on, this isn't right. A lot of the pressure goes on her to try and break the relationship off and to stop it, but, but then uh, to, to take the blame herself and not to do um, anything else. Uh, and not to say anything to anyone, and not and you know, the continuous pressure coming in to her from um, a lot of her male counterparts, a lot of her male juniors, some of her senior female juniors and counterparts, and um, everyone who's senior in the organisation that she's in. And it's not army uh, this month. Um, and that pressure has been building up over a period of time. And this is someone on their first posting who's on a probationary posting, and um, the outcome of the assessment of that posting will dictate what career path they're allowed to go uh, for the rest of their career. So you've got that career pressure that's been put on. Um, gets the point where you, it, it breaks her, the pressure that's going on, because she, she's having her career threatened, she's having her personal life threatened, she's having everything else threatened. Um, and she opens up to um, the person that she's in a relationship with about the pressure. And she says, look, I'm, I'm going to need to tell someone. I'm going to need to get this out. Um, and he turns around and says, well, um, you know, if you do that, I'm, I'm going to commit suicide. This individual is in a position where he's in a very, very, very public position. And if he decided to commit suicide in that public position in what it is that he does, it would um, hit the international headlines in a big way. I'm not going to go into any more detail at the moment because stuff will come out in the press, I suspect. Um, I hope it doesn't. I really hope it doesn't. But it, it, it's indicative of uh, a lot of the issues that there are because um, the whole debate went through the unit that she was part of, the subunit that she was part of, the formation headquarters that is responsible for the unit that she was part of, and at every level, every senior responsible person that's in there has tried to squash it, has tried to keep it down. They've done everything that they can possibly do to try and keep it down. First and foremost, to protect the reputation of the organisation. Secondly, to protect the reputation of the more senior officer and the position that they're in, because that was someone uh, who is, you know, in career terms, flying. And the third... Uh, uh, consequence is it's only a junior officer who's on probation it doesn't matter uh, and she's been the fall guy for what's bad behavior and bad command decisions the whole way through and I'd love to say that this is not typical across the board um, it's highly typical and you know through some of the work that I do out into the veterans community and um, providing support out into the the, the, the serving community um, I'm getting an awful lot of these stories that are coming through. Um, and the, uh, and the, this is going to be reflected in a report that's going to come out at the end of this month through an inquiry that's been done um, through a parliamentary subcommittee of the Defence Select Committee looking at women in uh, the military. Um, and it's had the biggest response of um, any inquiry, in, uh, parliamentary inquiry ever, over 4,000 responses, of, of which over a third of them are current serving officers soldiers, airwomen, um, naval ratings, and all the rest of it. And some of the detail in that inquiry and the evidence that's been collected is horrific, absolutely horrific. Now, it was less than a year ago that um, senior military commanders at the top of the Ministry of Defence people area turned around and said, there is not a problem. We do not have a problem in defence um, with 
um, you know, the integration of women into uh, all aspects, and there is not a problem with inappropriate behaviours um, uh, and everything else. Um, they're about to be proven wrong. Uh, there was a study by... It's a stupid claim to make any, anyway for any organisation. Yeah. Uh, that kind of stuff happens everywhere. In the, yeah. same, in the same way, there is racism prevalent everywhere in the same way that there is discrimination prevalent everywhere to whatever. It, 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 it happens everywhere. It's yeah. a question of what scale. You can't eliminate it all completely. You, you can't eliminate it completely. You, it's a question of what scale. You can't. And, and the scale, the scale is interesting. The, the scale is the difficult one to measure because you've gone right off the beaten path here. By the way, we start yeah, off well, well, <laughs> but, but it, it's indicative as, as, to, as to what as to why the decision making. It's it's a it's a it's a wider defence cultural piece um, that there is. And I'm, what I'm trying to highlight is it's it's the culture across the board, whether it's people, whether it's equipment, whether it's um, operational side of things. Um, it, it's the same culture that's that's causing flaws. And I'll, I'll come back to Afghanistan um, and examples in Afghanistan in in, in a moment. But uh, you're right about the scale. Um, it's the scale of the behaviour. Um, Defence says it isn't there. It is there. Defence doesn't know how much it's there because all of the mechanisms that are in place to measure it, at every time, you know, it, it starts off with um, you know, below subunits, up to subunit, unit, and all that. At every stage, the policies are fantastic. The policies that are in place are really, really good. So when the chain of command from the very highest four-star Ministry of Defence asks, you know, are all these policies being implemented, um, you know, the question goes right down to the lowest level. You know, are you implementing these policies? Oh, yes, boss, we've got the right posters on the, on the, on the, on the wall. We're, you know, d -d 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 the whole way up. So it's collated the whole way up. So the answer that goes up the chain of command is, of course it is. Why does that happen? That happens because it's the same chain of command that is responsible for the career development of all the individuals that are underneath. And if you know, you're at that level and you want to get to that level, uh, if you've got any little black mark on because of the competition that's run, if you've got any little black mark, you're not going to get there. So are you going to report anything that's going to put even a grey mark against you? No. Um, and, and the same thing happens um, on operations. And let's take it into operations. Um, and here's where I'm going to link Northern Ireland to Afghanistan again. Um, the internment activity that happened in Northern Ireland in the 1970s, where we sent inf infantry battalions onto the streets of Belfast and Derry to go into the Republican areas um, and uh, arrest um, individuals that intelligence had suggested were members of terrorist organisations and anyone associated with them and anyone who could be of that terrorist level and intern them without trial um, uh, and justify it being credible in that you find a couple of old Second World War Webleys um, and half a dozen rounds of ammunition in a, in a couple of houses uh, on a particular street. Um, there was probably on the street in those areas four or five individuals who were active members or definite members of uh, the terrorist organisations. However, after we went in with the RUC as it was at the time and smashed all the houses up and smashed, um, uh, uh, you know, beat lots of people up, took lots of people away and interned them without trial and everything else, um, virtually every male that was of terrorist fighting age was either then volunteering to join or actively supporting, and every family was actively supporting in every way the terrorist organisations that were happening. Come forward to Afghanistan. Um, and we learned the lessons in Northern Ireland. We learned that that wasn't the approach to, to do things. Well, and, they got and that approach from Malaya, interesting enough. Correct. Is, again, yeah. funny enough, Tony Shannon's come up for the third yeah. time. He's given me this book recently, yeah. uh, uh, British... Brush Wars or... Um, uh, bush Wars, and, and you're going back to the... No, the no, bush, brush, brush, br brush, brush Wars, yes. Brush, and you're going, you're, brush Fire Wars. Brush Fire Wars, and you're going back to the Frank Kitson tactics. But, yeah, but so, 
yeah, 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 yeah. So, 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 but, but the reason they brought that that internment in without trial in Malaya was because it was so difficult to get the local population to grasp their own people up. Yeah. So, like, we got no reliable sources. Yeah. How are we able to get these people off the ground? Yeah. Obviously, didn't translate very well into Northern yeah. Ireland. And, and, and again, this this is this is a failure of uh, your military commanders looking at um, you know, what's happened there, looking at the differences that there are between the different operational theatres, and you're know, trying to work out whether it would it would cause issue, it would cause issues. I think, and I may be wrong on this, um, so so please don't uh, you know, none of the listeners hang me on it. But I, th- I think it was still formally a tactic um, whenever Bloody Sunday happened that. Um, in dealing with riots and rioters, it was still in one of the tactics books somewhere that I read that uh, th- one of the things that uh, you did was an officer would march forward with uh, a megaphone shouting, um, you know, clear the riot, this is an illegal riot, you know, we're the army, if, if you don't clear up, we will shoot. Um, and you then you put banners up and saying, you, you clear the streets or we will shoot. Uh, and then the drill goes on to say, uh, and now you're to identify one of the ringleaders uh, and shoot them dead. Uh, and, that and, was, and that was first done in Palestine. Yeah. Both in the same book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you're right. Exactly. Yeah. I, that, uh, and, and, and therefore, you know, it, it's not un, uh, it's not unusual that our tactics in the early seventies in Northern Ireland were wrong because our lessons were coming from other operational theatres. But we learned from that very quickly, and learned very quickly that actually, no, what we had to do was build the hearts and minds of the. Um, the, the more depressed areas and worked together with the local government and you then started to get the housing rebuild that was going on. You then started to get the hearts and minds operations. You got the military moved into more, um, uh, you know, in the, in the harder areas, you, you, you had uh, more clever ways of doing what you needed to do to dominate the ground, the towers in South Armagh, um, you know, airborne patrols and, and uh, then the development of the intelligence networks to penetrate the terrorists so that you could interdict them in a... Um, surgical way you know and and take them out um, as they were carrying out uh, an incident uh, and not you know, take out the whole street in in, in the process lock goal was um very surgical uh, in what was going on uh, and you know achieved a lot and you know, you you started to pick away at the decision making and the confidence that they had in their own uh, abilities by you know, jarking the weapons by um, arresting them as they were going in by um, interdicting operations before they happened by arresting people as they were coming out of operations where the bomb hadn't gone off and they didn't know where the information was coming from. So that got them to the culminating point. Um, did we take that forward in Afghanistan? Let's look at the, the early days of Afghanistan when we went into a benign environment. Um, um, uh, it, it worked well. Uh, and there was a lot of good hearts and minds work going on out into um, the, the different villages, getting an understanding of what happened. Um, and that was before Iraq happened. And then all of a sudden Iraq happens and we get distracted and taken off to Iraq. But Afghanistan is still brewing away in the background. And um, there is a point, and I don't know in my own mind when, when that point was, but there's a point when um, in Afghanistan things went from the early days, hearts and minds, and, and you know, doing good stuff, the sort of stuff that the British military is really good at on the, on the, on the ground in different um, operational theatres to um, it turning into more of a fight against the Taliban. Well, I was six. There was nothing out before that, was it? Yeah. 
So 06 is when we went in in 04. Yeah. In, and, so and, 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 if you, and if you look at what happened in here, and I'm going to be slightly disingenuous. Oh, here. That, was, that was when the first connected activity happened. Maybe the, yeah. maybe this, this, the, the mindset changed yeah. before well, that 04. Well, the, the, I'm, I'm going to be slightly disingenuous here to um, certain commanders. I'm doing it in a very generic way, so I'm not, I'm not putting the blame on any individual or anything else. But if you look at the, the structure that there is in the military and you look at the pressures that they're on. So we've now got, we've gone from a benign, another operational conflict, uh, the war fighting um, and, the, and the actions still going on in Iraq. We're going back to something that had started off was a bit like the Balkans um, and the hearts and minds. Well, but it's now turning into something that's a bit more kinetic. Um, so you know, the first commanding officer of the infantry battalion on the ground where it goes, goes kinetic you know, uh, has to deal with this change that, that's happening and deals with it uh, very effectively um, and, you know, in uh, good terms, takes the fight in an appropriate way back to um, uh, the enemy uh, and you know, is containing it as much as possible whilst coming up with a plan as to you know, what you need to do to try and interdict it at the tactical level. First commanding officer, because he's done that, gets a DSO or gets a big medal, big bubble. Uh, I don't know which one was given out. Next commanding officer comes in on Roland. Um What's in the back of that individual's mind the whole way through? Um, going, right, I'm a CO, I want to be a brigade commander. And I, he, got, he got a DSO. If I don't get a DSO out of this, at least, and more medals for, for my um, guys on the ground, then I'm not going to get a chance at brigade commander. Because So, right, what am I going to do? Well, I'm, uh, you know, we've got this in here, I'm going to take the fight to the enemy. Um, right, so to take the fight to the enemy, you have to be more aggressive in our approach. So in being more aggressive to approach, we're going into the villages and we're kicking the doors down and we're um, finding weapons and we're, that's justifying what we're doing. And um, does that go back to Belfast in doing that? You know, AK-47s were the stable weapon that all the Afghans had in their house anyway. It didn't mean that you were Taliban. Um, and, and yes, you could have one or two people out of a village who were Taliban, uh, but were off elsewhere. But you know, if, if, if you go and kick all the village doors down uh, and you know, harass the people and disrespect them and what's going on, are they going to be more favourable to you or are they going to be more favourable to um, their relatives or Taliban who then send the whispers back in again saying, this is going to continue. We'll still be here long after they've gone, but here's what we want you to do. Now, we need a few more people to come and join us. We need you to pass some more information on this. That's the second CEO. Third CEO comes in and he goes, oh, he got, he got his DSO and he got his... DSO and he's got four MCs for the, for for this. Well, if if I don't do that, I'm not going to get brigade commander. And you can see a self-perpetuating, more aggressive stance until the Americans came in and went, oh, no, we need to. Um, uh, you know, the, I can't remember the American commander it was that, that turned around and changed the tactics and said, no, we need to get back into more hearts and minds, and we need to get away from this aggressive body count approach to what we're doing across Afghanistan. McChrystal. Uh, I think it could well have been McChrystal. Because um, there were patriots being in, but that was we were very kinetic when he was in. Yeah, um, and uh, and br and bring it back to the hearts and minds, and trying to build the communities again, and take the support away from what the Taliban were doing. But arguably, it's too late. A friend of mine um, is ex Al Qaeda. Um, a friend of yours? Yeah, friend of mine. Good friend of mine is ex Al Qaeda. Is uh, he in the UK? He lives in the UK. Um, he was <laughs> in Al Qaeda for over ten years. You know what I'm going to say, um, don't you? Uh, you know what I'm going to say, don't you? Go on. Fucking podcast. But he worked for British military intelligence for um, most of the... Sorry, not British military intelligence. He worked for MI6 for um, most of the time that he was in Al-Qaeda. Um, fantastic book. 
Nine Lives by Eamon Dean. If you ever want to read it, you want to understand um, uh, the, the intelligence network that went in and the Al-Qaeda thinking. Um, uh, absolutely brilliant. Who wrote that? He did? Eamon Dean, yes. This, uh, is, this is the guy? This is the guy. That's, that's, that's his cover name. He, he wrote it with a couple of journalists. Um, he is a fantastic thinker. And, and in fact, um, I've got him speaking at a conference, let me think, 28th of September in London, Olympia. It's free for people to attend. Um, on, uh, and talking about where um, Isla Islamic terrorism is going to go. Um, but his understanding of it is fantastic. And I was talking to him, um, and a lot of the stuff in the book, him and I had talked about before he wrote the book and before he outed himself in public um, uh, as, as, as being an MI6 um, spy. Um, but you know, he, he turned around and he was talking about the mentality in Afghanistan. And he said he'd gone up to see an old family friend um, that had been recommended to see who was growing... Um, uh, pashtun nuts, um, not pashtun nuts. What pistachio nuts. Pistachio nuts. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> pashtun nuts. Pashtun, yeah, pistachio nuts. Um, and he said it was a, about a day and a half on uh, horseback, ass back, and all the rest of it to, to, to get up to where his farm was. And this guy was in his early sixties, and he had a twelve-year-old son, and they were he was out planting new trees. And he was asking how long it takes for the trees to mature to get the harvest out and all this. And he says, oh, no, it'll take these a good 30 years before they're going to harvest. He said, but you're not going to be around. Why are you, why are you putting the effort into this? He said, well, it's, you know, it's, it's not for me. Um, and it takes a good number of years after that for the harvest to be any good. So it's not for my son. It's for my son's sons. And he says, that's the mentality. That's the way people think. They think in multi-generational terms. And they don't forget in multi-generational terms. Yet we've got... Military forces that are coming in, and the Americans are changing every 12 months, the Brits changing every six months, um, uh, everyone trying to achieve something in that period of time, whilst the enemy is sitting back and thinking in multi-generational terms, and the local people are doing so as well, and they don't care about the short-termism because they see what the long-termism is, and that's what um, the Taliban are exploiting at the moment. In global terms, we've got the same thing going on in wider geopolitics at the moment. If you look at what's happening with um, Xi Jinping, with Vladimir Putin, and a number of the others, Xi Jinping is in for life. Vladimir Putin has just created the conditions where he can be in for almost life as President of Russia. Uh, so we've got two of the big bad power blocks that are out there that are doing all the nasty things to us, who in their um, strategic planning have been able to plan in multi-generational terms. So Xi Jinping can say, I want to achieve this in 25 years, and he knows he's going to be the guy that's going to be there to steer, um, steer the ship to get there so we can do very gentle manoeuvres the whole way through. Our reaction is within parliamentary or presidential time, so it's three to five years. Arguably, it's two years, and arguably, it's actually what's the headline in tomorrow morning's papers or tomorrow morning's uh, news show. So we're spinning around like that. Well, they're just very gently moving around. They're watching us spinning, and they're going, mm, OK, so we can help that spin a little bit more. Um, one of the things that... Um, I don't think is public knowledge at the moment. The big debate going on after the um, European Cup final, um, the horrendous racism and racist abuse that's gone out on social media with regard to some of the football um, uh, stars that are there, Marcus Rashford uh, uh, et al. in particular. There are a number of Russian bots have been identified that have been deliberately putting racial slurs out against senior sports people, including Marcus Rashford and others, deliberately to stir the debate around the UK to create uh, this 
degree of instability. It's, it's minor stuff. It's tiny stuff. It's not going to achieve anything strategic for Russia at the minute, but it continues this little not, bit of instability. Not yet, though. But look at what... Th that is a major piece of why America is like it is right now. Yeah. That's a major piece of it yeah. because of the influence. And yeah. a lot of it will be blamed on Trump, for example, and yeah. he is partly to blame. But China, Russia, capitalise on it. Correct. And they do exactly what you're saying. Correct. And they get their fucking stick and then they stir it up. Yeah. And, and it's the old Chinese proverb of a death of a thousand cuts. Yeah. So one of them's not going to hurt you. Two of them's not going to hurt you, but a thousand are coming in over that period. And that's what the Russians and the Chinese are doing. And uh, and they're doing it with Iran, who's there. Their um, naughty boy that they can deploy every now and again is North Korea. Plausibly deniable outlet to do to do stuff. And a number of others. And there's this power block growing, I can think, in those multi-generational terms. The Taliban did that in um, Afghanistan. Um, uh, all of the different organizations in um, Iraq did that. We created ISIS. Our tactics created ISIS. ISIS originally grew out of um, a lot of the senior Iraqi commanders, the Ba'athist commanders, who were uh, arrested and then turned into um, uh, the American military prisons. Uh, and we saw the pictures of them being abused with dogs and, uh, and uh, everything else by American military personnel. And then, surprise, surprise, there's this big breakout. And the big breakout, most of them um, got out. They were the core of ISIS. They had designed a setup of ISIS whilst they were in prison. And did that happen in the H blocks? The design of the change of the IRA? So are the lessons coming across to all these different operations? Um, and you know, it went off and had already started to set the conditions for the infiltration into the little villages and all the rest of that all of a sudden uh, ISIS exploded from. But they, they, they set the conditions for that whilst they were in Abu Ghraib. Um, why did they do it? Because they were being abused, because um, of our actions, uh, because of the political decisions that were going on at the time. So your George Bush, Tony Blair created ISIS. It wasn't you know, anyone on the ground. If, if we had done things right in the way that we should have done, and we'd had a proper end state in everything that was going on and achieved that end state and, and brought in uh, everything that needed to be brought in for the people after we destroyed the complete infrastructure, then arguably ISIS wouldn't have happened. We wouldn't be in the level of instability they were at the moment with, uh, from a terrorist perspective from the current organisations. Uh, putting that to one side, there would have been another organisation or, or something else that would be causing similar terrorist problems because it's a, it's a constant threat for liberal democracies. Your terrorism is an, an inevitability in a liberal democracy. What about the theory that it's in it's in our interests, it's in America's interests, in the West's interests to maintain uh, maintain areas of instability where instability we've got where we've got an interest or there's a risk of democracy that could pose a threat to us or align with the wrong people. Iraq, for example, Afghanistan, for example, Libya, for example. Um, it's, it's a very strong argument, um, and there is some credibility to that if you look at it from a logical perspective. Um, however, I don't think the to do that and to, to achieve it uh, you, and properly plan it, you have to be able to think in multi-generational, multi, uh, um, 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 over a much longer period of time. Um, and does the West do that? No. Uh, and therefore, from a theoretical perspective, yes, brilliant. Um, uh, and it's good because it gives you somewhere to focus on. It helps stop um, different threats from um, uh, coming together in a way that they could uh, provide a, a, a more capable threat against um, you know, the Western countries and, and everything else uh, as, as, a, as a power block. Um, it provides um, a good platform to 
develop new weapon systems against. It provides a good platform to be able to pump taxpayers' dollars, pounds into defence companies um, to get back into the economy again, to keep the economy going because you're expending lots of weapons and building new and selling um, new weapon systems out to different places. So from a, an economic perspective, from a geopolitical perspective, from us and all this, there's an awful lot of logic to it. But to achieve that in a coherent way, um, it would need to be very carefully planned and very carefully managed. And I don't think we've got the wherewithal in our organisations. I think I think the too short term is focused to be able to do that. Or be culturally embedded in a, in a, in a long-standing existing policy. So so it's a known Chomsky book I read at the moment, and it mm. goes and it references examples of this, and it's, it's his opinion that's the case, and it references ex examples back as early as um, Nicaragua, Panama, mm. and he's talking about America. He says it. So mm. I'm not. I mean, maybe Minge mentioned in UK as well, but America. He's talking about yeah, Panama. Nicaragua, Vietnam, flipping where well, we talked about Iraq, yeah. Iraq twice. Yeah, yeah. You know. um, and that's why I asked. I think. Just to get yeah. But but it's you know it it is interesting. I, I don't think politically America's got the ability to think in those those longer terms. I think in some of the agencies and bits and pieces they've got the ability to do that. But they're but they're increasingly politicized. Um, and the one thing that shocked me in reading Barack Obama's um, autobiography was we blame Trump for a lot of the polarization within the, um, uh, the United States and the United States community and all the rest of it. It happened as Barack Obama was going through his campaigning and it was um, Sarah Palin and the Tea Party and all the rest of it. If, if, as you read through, you look at the level of influence uh, that there was and the polarization of the communities um, uh, that, that were happening through that time. Uh, and that was, what, four and a half years before Trump even came onto the scene? So the conditions have been set. So you know, all of these issues that Trump brought ahead with uh, the very graphic pictures that we saw of the storming of the Capitol building, um, all the conditions for that had been set back in Sarah Palin's time, back uh, as Barack Obama was taking over as president. Um, and that's scary when you start to realise that this is going on in the United States. The United States is, I, I personally believe, getting very close to a point where it's going to fracture itself in a number of different ways, potentially. And if that happens, God help us. I got a friend who was on Stevie Broom. He was on two two episodes ago, and he he said in the podcast he's got a friend who describes America as a third a third world country with a Gucci belt on. Yeah, and in many ways, I yeah. I, I completely understand what they're saying yeah. because because they are so they're in they're in a bad way at the moment. Yeah. I don't think I don't think people realise you know yeah. obviously we don't realise it in the UK unless you're sort of constantly tapped into some form of. American culture. I listen to you know a Joe Rogan podcast mm. and, and some, and some other piece, bits and pieces, and that's where I get my information from. Guaranteed, it's single source. It's single source. <laughs> right? it's, it's a single source. I understand, but still, you sort of get a picture of it, and it's not great at all. Mm. Not, it's very worrying because that's potentially where we're headed. You're yeah. seeing a lot of the you're seeing a lot of the same things that are happening over here. The polarization, yeah. the deliberate polarization. I mean, the you're talking about like. Uh, bots stirring up uh, mm. discontent online the media know it's the case yeah they still pounce on yeah. it because it's financially yeah. you know beneficial for them anyway we are going again off the beaten path because yeah. pull it back sorry <laughs> <laughs> we talk about so many things here, like a rant away about yeah, yeah but but you know you're 100 percent right and I, I don't know if you have a chance from military perspective to spend any time in the states i i, I spent a, a good number of weeks in georgia um and driving around um uh, out of fort benning um, doing a lot of exercises uh, out around the place, and God, it's shocking. You know the the, the haves and the have-nots, and you you find this your lovely little town, little village, beautiful big wooden houses that could be out of 
um, you know, any of the old colonial movies and stuff that you see and all this sort of, um, uh, around the town. Nice little you know, streets in the center of your big church and all this. But surrounding the town, there's lots of trailer parks. And that's where the majority of the people are living. The trailer parks tended to be beside um, you know, a Baptist church or, or something else with a big neon cross on it and, and, and everything else. But the, the haves and the have-not differences out of there. And, and, and then the understanding of, of people to uh, where they sit in the, uh, the, the, the global position. Um, another amusing story. We, we stopped, we're driving through one village, and we, we stopped for lunch and decided to go into a beautiful old village, wooden buildings the whole way through it. Georgia. Um, uh, in Georgia. And um, went into the, the local store that had a butcher's at the back of it, and the butcher's fridge was a big old wooden fridge with a very noisy um, cooler at the back of it. But there was a little burger bar there, burger bar and coffee bar. Um, and you could see the butcher chopping up and mincing the burgers and all that. So we, you know, we knew it was fresh and good beef. And there was, there was three of us, and we, we sat down and um, had ordered burgers and coffee and were sitting to eat them. And there was two locals sitting at the table next to us, and they were in um, you know, hunting combat-type gear. Um, with their high-vis vests on, and, and they, uh, they, they uh, looked, looked across, and we were in uniform with Union Jacks on our uh, sleeves and all that, and they, they came across and said, hey, you boys will not be from these parts then. I went, uh, no, we're part of the British Army. I didn't want to try and explain Ireland and relations. We're part of the British Army, and we're over here from, uh, from England. And I went, uh, you can see them, they talk to each other, and they said, England, uh, that'll, that'll not be in this state then, boys. Um, no, it's across the Atlantic Ocean. I went, uh, we know of Atlantic City, son, but Atlantic Ocean? And, and they were actually genuinely being serious. We thought they were joking to start with, but no, they were being serious. Um, and you know, when we educated them that uh, a little bit more, and they said, ah, yeah, you got uh, that, uh, that uh, queen, and, uh, and it's, it suddenly, suddenly clicked. Um, and we got into a bit of conversation with them, and they said, oh, yeah, what are you boys doing here? I said, we're doing some maneuvers with the U.S. military and all this, and we're out in this, and they said, ah, so boys, as to say, is that uh, how you go out and you do your manoeuvres and you're know, pointing to our combats? And I went, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, oh, boys, uh, one bit of advice. It's hunting season. And we went, okay, what does that mean? <laughs> it's hunting season. Um, and uh, they got up and walked out. And I thought, well, that's a bit strange. So we got your know, mobile phone out, phoned US liaison officer and said, look, we've just had this conversation and these two guys in hunting gear and all the rest of it who drove off in this truck with more weapons than we've ever seen in the back of it, um, uh, said, it's hunting season. And it went silent at the other end of the line. And the US liaison officer said, yeah, you guys are, are you, you're wearing high-vis vests, aren't you? And went, no. I said, um, get some. Put them on now. Do not go anywhere near the woods without a high-vis vest on. I was, why? Yeah, why have we one cup and then high-vis vest? He says, how many deer have you seen wearing high-vis vests? <laughs> <laughs> I was going, shit. And back into the woods. And there was you bullets winging around all over the place. They shoot at anything that moves. Um, and that's after chatting to them afterwards with, with a few beers. said they shoot at anything that moves. And yeah, the mentality is scary. Very scary. Um, however... Coming back to Afghanistan, I do think that from a tactical perspective um, uh, and its ap application at the operational level and strategic level, the Americans have developed and properly learned from a lot of the lessons in a way that we haven't. The thing that's held the Americans back is their cultural approach to things and that lack of understanding at the, at the very lowest level of a lot of the people that are in there, whereas we've got people at the lowest level who know how to use their initiative, who know how to engage and can achieve an awful lot. 
but it's at that operational and strategic level that we've got this group think that pallor, uh, um, um, paralyzes you know, a lot of what it is that we're trying to achieve, um, and it, it just hasn't worked. But the Americans, don't they suffer from the same fate as we have in terms of, um, what you call it, mission creep? Yeah. Or a lack of yeah. understanding of what needs to be achieved, yeah. and uh, and those you know short short term appointments. Yeah, um, and, and and again they've got a will do can do yes sir attitude. And whenever whenever your POTUS phones up and says um, can, can we do this or can you do it with half the number of troops, um, they'll suck the teeth. And again, it comes this comes out really well in the Barack Obama book um, because he was asked he he come in on a ticket to withdraw U.S. troops from Afghanistan. Surprise, surprise, Joe Biden, who was his vice president, uh, has just picked up the same ticket. Everything that Joe Biden's doing is exactly what Barack Obama had set in place beforehand. That, uh, that I find interesting as well. Um, but um, whenever Obama was presented with the real problems and the issues that there were to, to do it from a practical perspective and the impact it would have on uh, the locals and, and everything else, you know, he agreed reluctantly to expansion operations. Um, but he limited the number of troops. And instead of his generals turning around and going, Sorry, Mr. President, that isn't going to work. I quit. And they'd have walked out. Their pensions would have been fine. Uh, nothing would have happened. Politically, it would have made Obama have to rock back and suddenly go, right, this is really affecting me politically. But they didn't. They turned to the right, saluted smartly, as good military people do, and went, yes, sir, we'll get it done. And they went on to do it. That's where the military gets it wrong, whenever we've got that political military interface at the senior officer level. Too many senior officers feel as if they have to support the politician, not hold the politician to account. And there's no other mechanism anywhere in defence to hold any other element of defence to account outside the chain of command. And that chain of command is also, um, you know, everyone in it is focused on, can I achieve the next level up? Can I achieve the next level up? And therefore, no bad news upwards is almost an unwritten policy. What's the answer to that, though, Phil? If, that's the, if that is the case, what's the answer to it? It's a it's a very difficult one. Um, it's 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 a very difficult one. I think, um, I think there should be a creation of what I call a safe space for an unsafe conversation. So let's look at Ajax, the the army's um, reconnaissance vehicle. I know you have feelings on this, that, don't you? That, well, three point six. <laughs> yeah, a feeling of feelings as a veteran, because we need good kit, and I've suffered bad kit on operations. Um, I have feelings as, because I worked with a defence contractor that supplied components for Ajax. Um, In what year? I, uh, that was back in 2010, 11, 12, uh, at the beginning of the project. And we turned around and said, um, this is a bag of nails um, to defence equipment. And they continued on with it. Um, and I've, I feel... What were the problems with it? What was the, what were the well, from, from our particular perspective at the time, because we supplied the track for it, um, so part of the running gear. Um, the, the whole running gear hadn't been designed as a, as a single capability. They were buying different elements in from different places. So the suspension wasn't designed to run with that particular track, with that particular, uh, you know, with the particular sprockets and, and other elements of the running gear. Um, they're all being brought in and then fitted together. That's never a good bedfellow. You want it all to be designed from the outset. Um, and if you get that wrong, um, especially when you're then trying to, you know, you're, you're putting... Um, suspension and track and other bits and pieces that are um, not designed to work at the upper weight limits that um, you're asking the, the, the capability to carry. 
um, you're going to get vibration problems, you're going to get reliability problems, you're going to get everything else. And that was from the outset of the program, and they never fixed it the whole way through. And they never fixed it the whole way through because there wasn't a mechanism for those in industry. Those in industry didn't really care because it was just money coming in, and every time they were asked to do something or change something, that was a change condition in the contract, that's more money coming into them. Those in defence equipment would turn, turn to the right suit smartly, and yes, of course, you can get it fixed. Um, uh, but you know, senior decision makers uh, you know, in uniform were only there for three years maximum. So you've got that turnover issue. So you're not getting that consistency. And actually, if the program fails, um, does the senior responsible officer or senior responsible officers, whether they be in uniform or out of uniform, at the end of the day get held responsible and not get promoted or not get their pensions or not get anything else? No. There's no level of responsibility. So I think you know, the the... I'd bring in a series of measures. I'd bring in responsibility for uh, decision-making um, at, at senior levels. So senior responsible officers, whether it be operational senior responsible officers or, or whatever, um, have got an accountability that lasts them for 10 years after they leave service, 15 years after they leave service, whatever. You put it in there. The banking, the banking sector has got... The banking sector has got something similar, where they hold back a percentage of the bonuses um, of senior um, banking staff for a period of time after they've left their post. And if anything goes wrong, that bonus doesn't get paid to them. Well, we should do the same. You know, the, 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 the pension for senior officers is very, very generous indeed. Hold some of that back and say, you're not getting it. Um, unless, uh, if there's any issues that come up, that will make people think before they make decisions. Um, so you have to have some form of accountability that's put in place um, and individuals held accountable and that will improve decision making. All we need is one or two to be publicly held accountable and that will improve decision making. I think the second thing that we need is an independent conscience that sits outside the Ministry of Defence that um, gives a safe space for an unsafe conversation. That's something between Ofsted for education so it is examining different organisations, units, and all the rest of it for their efficiencies, and all that, but from an independent perspective where it's not influenced by the chain of command. But as it's examining, it gives a safe space for the chain of command to ask for advice as to how to improve things without that being automatically exposed to the next level um, and therefore having an impact on people's career development and everything else. It takes the embuggeration of the administration of doing that away from the chain of command, which, you know, we're there to provide military capability. We're there to prepare to go to war uh, in many occasions. So you know, making sure that, um, and I hear I'm going to show, show my age, your, your seven, 1776s are all, which was the old claim form, um, all filled in correctly with the, the right I's dotted, T's crossed, and all the rest of it, and presented in the appropriate format to go out for an admin inspection. Is that improving? Is that providing military capability? Would I far rather be on the range, making sure that you know, we've got everyone uh, shooting skills up or fitness or something else? So you've got that, that dilemma that's there. So something to be able to provide that at every level. So that instead of the chain of command reporting up that, yeah, everything's okay. No, don't worry, boss, everything's okay. Actually, there's an independent organization that's gathering that information and going, we've got brilliant policies in place, but actually, folks, it's not being implemented here, 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 and here in these ways because of this. Here's how we fix it. And it has the expert advice in it to be able to come in and fix it in a blame-free way, in a way that's designed to improve that capability, not and uh, hold people to account and hang them out to dry, which is what happens when things go wrong uh, at, the mo at the moment when you're dealing with it. Um, and then the other thing that comes in is when things do go wrong, because you, you will get that, um, and people are unhappy, you've got a, 
a complaints process. At the moment, the service complaints ombudsman herself, who says she's only independent by dint of personality, because um, she's funded by the MOD, and they fund all her staff and say whether they're going to fill vacancies or not. Um, uh, she says the service complaint system is not fit for purpose in its current guise. She says 90% of those that should complain don't. 70% of those that do complain, it should be resolved at a low, low level. Um, and 100% of those that are involved in the service complaint system, whether they, by the complainant or the respondent, suffer mentally. Well, therefore, the system is broken. Uh, is is defence doing anything about it? No. So you bring in an ACAS-type system as well um, as part of an, this organisation. And if you look at what ACAS does for industry... What's ACAS? Um, it's the, uh, the, the, uh, the arbitration and conciliation service. So they come in and will sit down with the two different parties um, and listen to one party, listen to the other party, and act as... Um, you know, the, the independent body to negotiate and get the two bodies to a, a common theme. You find them brought in often whenever there's industrial disputes um, in, in different organisations and it, it goes to ACAS and nine times out of ten they come out with a resolution that is satisfactory to both sides. Both sides have to compromise but it's satisfactory to both sides and you deal with that. If we had that sort of system for service complaints that were coming through or um, complaints with how industry was reacting to different things and, and you've got the right level of experts that are in there, you could resolve a lot of things that currently are going to 100% of those that are involved in it are suffering mentally because of it. Um, and it, it shouldn't have that. So I personally think there should be an independent organisation um, that uh, provides that level of oversight. And interestingly... Um, Air Chief Marshal Sir Mike Wigson two years ago did a report into inappropriate behaviours across defence and one of his recommendations was the creation of what he called a defence authority that would provide the framework for that sort of thing to occur um, and uh, so far Ministry of Defence has done everything to try and um, tweak, change, not implement uh, a lot of the recommendations that have come out of that and again this is where because there's no accountability in any way shape or form um, and, and defence runs scared. Senior officers run scared that um, you know, they're going to be found out in, in, in doing something, uh, and therefore you know, they, they don't they don't like change. They don't want change. They don't want to implement things. They, they've got this belief that everything is right because chain of command the whole way up is reporting them everything is right. Um, there, there's there's no drive for change, um, and until that comes in, it's just going to keep going and going and going, and we'll find the same problems then come into. Uh, and, and we look at you know, the outputs of Northern Ireland with the um, uh, the prosecutions that are going on there. We look at the whole um, Phil Schreiner case um, and the El Swede prosecutions that um, uh, were coming out of Iraq. We haven't seen anything out of uh, Afghanistan yet. It wouldn't surprise me if something uh, comes com comes out of Afghanistan. And I know some stories that will do. Um, why, why is a lot of that happening? You know, defence turns around and says our people are our most important asset. And actually, when you sit back and look at it and go, no, they're not. Because if our people were our most important asset, you'd look after the people you've got duty of care on. Um, process is defence's most important asset. And they just want to go through a process. And um, if that costs people, they don't care. I go back to the example that I used of that young lady. Um, you go, I go back to the examples that uh, there are in, in different operational decisions that are made. And, and it, you know, this is where preparing peace for what you do in war your administration in barracks will have as much of a, uh, uh, an influence on you know, how your decision-making is going to happen at the, at the higher levels or, or other levels in war. And I think it's really sad that we've had tens of thousands of amazing young men and women 
who've been on the ground in different operational theatres have achieved an awful lot and put their heart and soul into it and done everything that's been asked of them. Some of them have come back with bits missing. Some of them haven't come back at all. Some of them have come back um, with non-visible injuries that will stay with them for life. But actually, in reality, because of what our senior commanders were doing, they've been nothing more than busy fools because they haven't achieved anything from a strategic perspective at all. And is the price worth it? I'd argue no. Mm. Yeah, I know what you mean. I, I've, I've think I've said stuff like this a few times before. You know, that's where I look at it. Uh, although I look at it in a slightly different way, um, is that overall strategically, I think it wasn't worth it. Hmm. I, I, well, I think we didn't achieve anything. Hmm. Right? Arguably, made things worse potentially. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if I look at if I look at the operations I've been on, um, you know, I've been operating deployed Cyprus, Northern Ireland, um, Germany during the Cold War, um, uh, then Croatia before Bosnia happened, Bosnia, um, Kosovo, and then what's now uh, Northern Macedonia uh, and Iraq. And I didn't deploy to Afghanistan. I sent an awful lot of my soldiers to Afghanistan, um, but uh, I didn't deploy there myself. Um, I can go on holiday to Germany. The Cold War didn't happen. Um, I can go to holiday in, in Northern Ireland. Uh, well, I'm from there originally anyway, so I would go back, but you know, it's, it's a good place to go on holiday. I can go on holiday to Croatia, easy jet will fly in there, Ryanair fly in there, and beautiful, and I've been on holiday there. I, I can take an easy jet flight into Sarajevo and have a nice weekend in Sarajevo. Um, you, can, you can go to Pristina and drive around Kosovo on, on holiday and Ryanair fly into Pristina uh, on a regular basis. North Macedonia is lovely. Iraq? Nah. Um, yeah, you Afghanistan. Do that before, though, Philip. Could Afghanistan. You nah. You couldn't do that before either. <laughs> you, you couldn't do that before. Um, yeah. You're talking 60s, 70s for Afghan, maybe early 80s. Well, in Iraq, you couldn't well, do that before. In interesting. In, in, in Iraq. Um, no more than you could. Lo 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 love him or hate him. George Galloway you know, flew into Iraq and, and, and went um, walking around when Saddam Hussein was there. Yes, Saddam you know, ruled with an iron rod and all that, but actually you had more freedoms to go in and less chance of being shot. You'd, you, you could have been arrested by the, the Saddam's secret police and all this, and that's a different matter. Afghanistan, Rory Stewart, um, the um, former conservative politician who was running for mayor of London and uh, tried to uh, run for leader of the Conservative Party and all that, walked across Afghanistan before all of this happened. The early days, whenever um, you know, the, 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 the first troops went in, it, you know, it was, uh, the paras in, in, in the ground, the, you, the, the, it was the old Northern Ireland bit of cups of tea um, being brought out to the troops that were out there, the Where hearts and minds, in the early days in Afghanistan. Oh, Afghanistan, yeah. Yeah, and in the very early days before Kabul, yeah, um, uh, and 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 in Kabul, but else, elsewhere out in the ground in the villages, people were being um, welcomed skeptically, but but were being welcomed. They weren't being attacked as they came in, uh, and then things change. Uh, Northern Ireland, when you know, we first deployed into the, the streets of Derry, um, it was the Catholic population that came out and were bringing sandwiches and cups of tea to the troops on the ground, and then something changes and things change. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you go to Iraq or Afghan now, you're arguably not going to get attacked by the local population. You're going to get attacked by the terror, in inverted commas, terrorists. Yes, but the local population will target you in because you've got value. Yeah. Um, you've got value to be kidnapped and, and, and moved on. And, and that's that's the thing. Again, uh, the conference at the end of um, September, uh, one of the guys that's coming in is an IT contractor who um, got captured in 2007, held hostage for 
just over two years, and he describes what happened then from a civvy perspective uh, and everything else as part of a realities of terror um, understanding um, as, as part of the conference series. And you know, it's fascinating hearing his story and you know how everything changes. And it goes back to the old Terry Waite bit in uh, Lebanon and all the, all, all the other stories. You go to Afghanistan and Iraq now, yes, elements of the local population will... Uh, look after you really well indeed, uh, and it's part of actually Muslim culture that if you go in, um, they are to look after you, but also they see a value on you, and a lot of these are very poor people, and that value is something that they could never make in you know, several years of the hard work that they're doing, and all they have to do is whisper to someone that uh, you're there, and, and you're then gone, and yes, it's the nasties that'll take you away. Will that happen in the Balkans? No. Does that happen in Northern Ireland? It could do to me, but for most people, no. Um, so, so there's you know, mission success because we knew what the mission end state was in, in all of these different places and, and arguably have achieved it um, we didn't know what the mission end state was in Iraq when we got in we allowed mission creep but again never defining uh, an end state and the same things happened in Afghanistan who's responsible for that? is it the politicians that send, set the mission end state? well that'll give rough political direction but actually it's a military, you know, when it turns into a military task, it's a military, grand strategic military planning task. Uh, and you sit down with the foreign office and the politicians, all the rest of it, as part of it. But if you disagree with it, don't turn to the right salute smartly and say, yes, sir, we can get on with it. Disagree with it and say, I disagree with that. I quit. And then you've made a political statement and people have to sit up and listen. And there's always people that will come up and, 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 and go past you. But there was zero consequences for our senior officers quitting. Um, to make that sort of strength of point, and none of them did it. Mm. That's the biggest failing. We've got a few minutes left. Mm. Um, defence bill. Hmm. Or what's, the, what's the full name? The, the, well, there's the Armed Forces Bill that's being, debated, bill. The, be, be, sorry, being, sorry. being debated today in, in Parliament, um, and that's debated every five years. See, I thought this was all right, a good thing. You don't seem to think so. No, because it's, br- it's, it's not bringing in a lot of changes. What's um, it suggesting? What's it suggesting on the, on the face of it? Um, it's, it's bringing in a few tweaks. Um, it's adding a few additional pieces in that um, uh, are, from a soundbite perspective, giving positive things forward. Like? Um, they um, are bringing in uh, an independent police, um, uh, service police, organization like the um, uh, uh, independent office of police complaints to look after service police investigations because at the moment there's no mechanism of putting formal operational complaints in against service police yeah it's going to bring one of those things in Um, it's recertifying a lot of the processes and procedures that are in place at the moment and and setting the condition for for the next five years Um, it's not changing a lot but in not changing a lot, it's not bringing in recommendations from two significant studies that the Ministry of Defence asked to happen in its first place. The first one was by his honour, Judge Lyons, that looked at the service discipline system and service discipline process and was looking at, and again this hit the Times newspaper today, that the percentage of um, service personnel who uh, were being convicted of sexual assault and rape um, uh, is significantly less than the equivalents in City Street, those that are that go through the service justice system, um, and questions whether um, the service justice system is fit for purpose for those sorts of um, serious crimes. Um, and thankfully, 
they are not commonplace, but yeah, they're serious crimes that should be dealt with. His Honour Judge Lyons a few years ago uh, was asked to do a study into the service justice system and, and look at that and the service police capability and all the rest of it. And his recommendations were service police do not have, because they're not getting the volume of cases through and all the rest of the experience, to be able to adequately investigate and produce the evidence that's needed for, for serious crimes. And therefore, it should not happen. Um, uh, it should be passed to the civilian police first, first and foremost. Uh, and that the service justice system um, should um, not be the default setting for things to go through. It should go out to the civilian court system. Uh, and with the majority, yeah, it makes logical sense with the majority of the military now based in the UK, um, you, you, we can do that. Um, that's not been brought in. And, and as part of the debate for the Armed Forces Bill, um, it has been rejected at every level by the Armed Forces Bill uh, Select Committee. Um, but on a whip, a parliamentary whip, um, uh, and there just happens to be a majority of Conservatives on the committee because they're the majority in the government. Why reject it? Um, because they didn't want the change. They yeah, didn't. but why, why? They haven't given any logical reason as to why it, can, why it should be rejected uh, in any of the debates whatsoever. Um, when it came to the debates, they let all of the opposition parties put their uh, piece across. They then went to vote, and when it came to vote, um, said no. Didn't bring out logical debate. They're saying... Um, they, uh, when they've been questioned in Parliament, the default setting from the Secretary of State for Defence or from uh, the Minister for Defence people is that uh, we uh, disagree, we believe that the, uh, the service discipline system is fit for purpose. That's all they say. It is fit for purpose. The even second, though the study says otherwise. Even though the study by an independent judge commissioned by the Minister of Defence itself to do it says it's not. Um, and the statistics say it's not. Um, uh, another study that was done, commissioned by um, uh, the Minister of Defence, they asked Air, now Air Chief Marshal Sir Mike Wigson um, into looking at inappropriate behaviours across defence. He came out with a, uh, and that was two years ago, he came out with 36 recommendations in a six-week study, and he said there's an awful lot more to uh, get into this. Um, just before Christmas, there was a one-year review of that study done by... Um, uh, non-executive director working for defence people. Uh, surprise, surprise, most of the issues were defence people related issues um, <laughs> that, he, that he picked up. Uh, so non-executive director for defence people, uh, is this marking your own homework? Um, goes through it and says, it's fantastic, we've made fantastic progress in achieving um, uh, everything that's been laid out in uh, Sir Mike Wigson's uh, report. It achieved one out of the 36 things. <laughs> and the one out of the 36 things was setting up um, a uh, a helpline for those that feel as if they're being bullied or harassed. That's it. And that was success. Um, it was debated again by the various subcommittees. All of the people that came in to give evidence that the subcommittees for the Armed Forces Bill turned around and said the Whigs and recommendations need to be brought in in full. The Secretary of State has said we support this and we'll bring in the um, recommendations in full. Um, uh, uh, and we'll support it completely and everything will be brought in. The Armed Forces Bill is the place to bring it in none of the recommendations have been brought in. Why? Why the Secretary of State has said it, we support this completely, and, uh, and is then not supporting any of them being brought in and insisting that changes go on? I don't know. I've been trying to get inside the heads of the, uh, the, the different people on the committee, and I'm interacting with members of the Defence Select, Select Committee fairly often. Who's on the committee? Um, it's chaired by Tobias Elwood, um, and there's, there's, there, there's a number of... Uh, of different committees, the full list I haven't got in the, in the back of my head at the minute. Are you aware of the uh, TBI research, the, the stuff being done by Mandy Bostwick, etc., trying to get that in front of, um, uh, well, it has been in front of the Defence Select Committee, I know Mandy has, 
and oh, the professor Gary Green, I think, were there as well. Yes, I've seen a lot of the stuff that they've that they've been putting in, uh, and um, a lot of that was helping inform. They've come in to help inform a lot of what was happening in the Armed Forces Bill and, and trying to get... Um, the, the biggest thing about the Armed Forces Bill is enshrining the, um, uh, the, the, the covenant into law. And that, that's the big sign by it that's out there. But the Armed Forces Covenant um, is great for all the industries that are signing up to it. Uh, the Ministry of Defence itself needs to sign up and start to live to it. And that's the bit that's not happening. Um, and again, there's another case that's going on at the moment. Um, a bank, uh, I'll not name them, Santander, um, who are doing an absolutely fantastic job at looking after a veteran um, who's got into trouble and got into trouble with um, some uh, his mortgage that through Santander and all the rest of it. Um, he had engaged with the benevolent fund from the service that he's part of, who had initially engaged to say, yeah, yeah, we'll come in and support you. And then they went, oh, this is all too difficult, and um, pushed them under a bus. Um, whenever a letter was written to the chief executive of Santander um, and said, um, you know, this is what's happened, he's been pushed under a bus, is there anything you can do? Santander came back and went, oh, no, 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 we, we hadn't realised that. No, we've signed up the Armed Forces Covenant. We're going to do everything that we possibly can, um, and we will look after them. And they've come up with a plan to make sure that this individual is being looked after. The third sector that the Minister of Defence says is the bit that's there to look after our veterans, and this was a service charity um, relating to that particular service, um, let him down. However, industry picked it up and dealt with it. Who's that? You can't say. Can't say. Okay. I'm glad you didn't go it's slate in Santander. I've got a very good friend who works in Santander. Yeah. No, no, <laughs> no full, 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 full marks. They're brilliant. But one of the lessons that's coming out of that is that um, they hadn't realised that actually the third sector wasn't living up to the covenant and therefore Ministry of Defence isn't living up to the covenant. And don't get me started on Veterans UK because they are a disaster. And that's another <laughs> separate podcast all by itself. Uh, and again, it's Ministry of Defence. They're not living up to the covenant. And the covenant is the big thing in the Armed Forces Bill. Um, and it's... Um, and enshrining it into law. And there, there's so many elements of that that they have failed to bring in that would um, allow Minister of Defence and give Minister of Defence a level of accountability and everything else. The, the sim simply, it's the Wixon recommendations and HH Lyons recommendations, and they've refused to do it. And I don't know why. Anyway, on a positive note, shout out to there again. <laughs> Phil, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. Absolute pleasure. Have we covered off everything... Is there anything else you want to cover off? You are absolutely welcome to come back another time. I think so. Obviously. Happy to come you back anytime. You too far time. away, do you? No, no, no. I'm just up the road in Brum. So, so it's not too far away at all. Yeah, I, can, I, yeah. I can get the accent you, 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 can get that, you can get that from the accent. Yeah. yeah if, if people haven't read it, the Simon Ackham book. Um, uh, Nine Lives. No, no, no. No, no, no. Sorry. The Simon Ackham book, which is The Changing the Guard. Okay. Uh, that was quite hard-hitting and very critical of all their stuff. You know, I... I all of the names that are in there that um, went through Canada and Canada training and you know, ended up going into the Gulf and then out to Afghanistan, I've, w w about 80% of them I've actually worked with on operations and different areas, so I know them extremely well. And Simon Ackham's description of what has gone wrong across defence, which is what I've sort of talked through and expanded on a little bit today, is completely accurate. So you know, I recommend that. I recommend Nine Lives by Eamon Dean if you want to understand um, the intelligence work into Al-Qaeda. Um, and it's it, they're, they're both easy to read um, and, in, and very informative. In put me in touch with Eamon. Yeah. yeah. I'll speak to him and see. Wink, wink. He, he is not in a position where he'd potentially travel down, so he'd, he'd potentially do something remotely. 
talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, how do people follow what you're doing? Uh, read what you're writing. Um, um, you, 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 see, you see me on Google, and uh, you, you, you'll see a lot of the stuff that's coming up in the mainstream press and everything else that I'm involved in. Um, Greyhairmedia.com. Uh, that's in that's grey as in the colour, hair as in the animal, and, and media.com. I've got a blog post on there where you'll see me you know, explaining lots of things that are happening um, around the world um, as, as they go on. I, I don't put stuff up as regularly as I should do on that, um, but um, you know, people are free to come in and, and read that. And um, I'm putting some conferences together at the end of the year for um, a thing called the International Security Expo um, in London, Olympia, 28th, 29th of September free to attend, but it will have Eamon Dean at it. It will have Fegan Murray, who's the mother of Martin Het, who uh, got blown up in the Manchester Arena bombing, and she's pushing the new prevent duty. Um, uh, that, that's that's going to come in uh, from a security perspective. Uh, it'll have you know, an awful lot of senior people that will you know, it's got it's got uh, that hostage I was talking about, a guy called Peter Moore, who's going to give his overview of of what's going on. I've got de- uh, Detective Sergeant uh, Nick Bailey, who got poisoned by Novichok in um, uh, Salisbury, coming to talk about his experiences of of, of being poisoned um, and and things like that. So that you know, it's it's free to come to, and not that I'd ever tell a military audience uh, out there that um, you know the, the the day one, having been to this uh, on a few occasions beforehand, there tends to be free beer at the end of day one. <laughs> will we get civilians listening to this as well mate believe it or not it's not just open to military it's open to anyone it's a good event actually it is it's a good, really event. good event yeah, yeah. I've, been, I've been a couple of times um, we do enjoy it and yes day one is usually well last time I went it was I was invited to a a cocktail party. That happens after the free beer is all, all dried out, which, <laughs> which happens fairly quickly. But you know, I'm, I'm putting the conferences together for that, so uh, if people want to see some of the stuff, there's some interesting speakers. I'll try and get there. I'll try and get there. Mate, been a pleasure. Real pleasure. organization fundraiser for military charities since 2009 and they've raised approximately 114,000 pounds in doing so an incredible amount of money raised organizing charitable events rugby and beer and gin oriented events look out on their website rugbyforheroes.org for the next events they had the last one last month in june 26th of june and it was absolutely fantastic i really enjoyed it also follow them on social media at rugby number four heroes thanks mike and the rugby for heroes also sponsored the podcast today were the Aardvark Group. The Aardvark Group deploy technical innovations, cutting-edge technology, surveillance technology, drone technology, and ground-based technology to try and rid the world of unexploded ordnance and unexploded landmines, and also to make post-conflict zones a safer place for operating in, working in, and for the local population. Go to aardvark.group, hit their shop, and if you work in a post-conflict zone enter the, uh, and need some kit, their shop can provide it to you. Enter the discount code H-H-O-U-R, so H-O-U-R without the hyphen, and you'll get a discount at the shop. Thank you, Aardvark. Aardvark.group. Finally, sponsoring the podcast today were the Development Society. The Development Society is a community of like-minded people who want to be better than they were yesterday. Uh, go to their website, thedevelopmentsociety.co.uk, and sign up for the Daily Waves newsletter. You will get a host of information, very useful information, into your inbox on a daily, on a daily basis. You'll also get... Uh, 
you, you'll get access to their um, to, to when their Zoom yoga sessions are being held. They're the best kind of people you can be involved in if you want self-improvement, personal improvement, professional improvement. DevSoc is the place to go. They're also on um, social media, at The Development Society. Thank you to all my sponsors. Thank you to you. If you're enjoying what I'm doing, please become a patron of the podcast. Go to patreon.com forward slash hkpodcast. And the, for the price of a coffee a month, you can support what I'm doing and be a even more integral part of the podcast, part of a, the core community right at the center of HR. Patreon.com forward slash hkpodcasts. That's it. Until next time, out.